The following presentation is from the 41st Annual Addiction Treatment Leadership Conference, presented by the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, held in Washington, D.C., May 5th through the 7th, 2019. This is General Session 2. It's a tribute to former First Lady Betty Ford. It's a candid conversation between Mrs. Ford's daughter, Susan Ford Bales, and Lisa McCubbin, award-winning author of the biography Betty Ford, published by Gallery Publishing, a subsidiary of Simon & Schuster. Here with the introduction is Marvin Ventrell, Executive Director of NAATP. An advocate, a survivor, a trailblazer. We honor and thank her for the doors she opened and the secrets she brought out into the open. She spoke out on nearly every important issue of our time. Feminism, equal pay, the Equal Rights Amendment. I've seen the pictures with the button. <laughs> Healthcare, and of course addiction. Mrs. Ford shared with the nation her battle with alcoholism and addiction. She was a force in breaking down the shame and stigma surrounding addiction. Today we have the opportunity to hear more about Mrs. Ford directly from Betty Ford biographer, Lisa McCubbin, and Susan Ford Bales, photojournalist, author, Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation board member, and of course, daughter of President and Mrs. Ford. Lisa is an award-winning journalist and the author of four New York Times best-selling books. She spent months researching this thought-provoking inside look, interviewing family members, friends, and colleagues, as well as combing through presidential archives and museums. Please, ladies and gentlemen, join me in welcoming Susan Ford Bales and Lisa McCubbin. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to give you a, um, a little overview of the book about Betty Ford. Um, the question I get asked most often is, why did I want to write a book about Betty Ford? Um, I was approached with the idea by my editor at Simon & Schuster. And um, I saw this photo, came across this photo. This is Betty Ford dancing on the cabinet room table of the White House. And I thought, wow, that's some woman. I want to find out what makes her tick. So my first call was to Susan. I think I actually wrote you a you letter. Wrote me a letter. And um, what was your first thought when I told you I wanted to write a book about your mother? Well, I have to say, I didn't know who Lisa McCubbin was, so um, I had to do some research on who Lisa was, um, because there had been talk by other people doing a book, and it never progressed anywhere, and so I thought, you know, I'll give her two hours of my time and, and meet her face-to-face -face and, and see what she's all about, and we connected from day one. Yeah, so by the end of the two hours, um, I was really lucky. She opened up her address book and said, you can call this person and that person. So um, we really did connect and have become good friends in the process. So, um, so Susan was able, of course, to tell me about her mother from how, when she knew her, but she, of course, didn't know her before she was born. So I um, did a lot of research. I went to the Ford Library um, and found a lot of photos of Betty and tried to piece together her early childhood. She, of course, had written her own autobiography, so I used material from that. Um, but Betty was born April 8, 1918. Um, her family moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan when she was about three, and she grew up in this home. I actually went to all of the homes 
that she lived in. Um, it just gave me a sense of, you know, how she grew up and, um, you know, just, I, I kind of felt her presence everywhere that I went. And um, her mother um, introduced her to dancing when she was eight years old. Betty had two older brothers and she was kind of a tomboy. And her mother wanted to add some finesse, I guess, to her. Um, that's her on the right. She fell in love with dance. And that carried through her whole life, didn't it, Susan? It, it did carry throughout her life. Um, my mother was late in marrying, um, and so she had a career as a dancer and a model for a long time. And of course, wanted her only daughter to be a dancer too, which I did not succeed at. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you shot. Um, this is a photo of Betty with her father in the middle and one of her older brothers. Um, oddly enough, I did not come across any photos of her entire family together. Um, and that kind of tells you something. Her father was a traveling salesman, and when Betty was 16 years old, her father committed suicide. Um, it, the family really didn't admit that it was a suicide until years later, but that is what it was. Um, it was after the Great Depression, he had lost his job. He had bounced around from job to job, and Betty would find out at her father's funeral when she was 16 that he had been an alcoholic. She didn't know that before, it was hidden. Um, and so imagine, um, the, she's going through this grief, and then of course there was shame on top of it because it was not something that was talked about at that time. So Betty went on to, um, to continue her dancing career. She was admitted to Bennington College summer program for dance, and she studied under Martha Graham. Her passion was modern dance, and that's her, um, at Bennington College when she was about 18 years old. I came across her notebooks um, that she kept at Bennington College, and I just found this stuff fascinating, because here this was in her own writing, and she just took pages and pages of notes. I didn't know there was so much you could write about dancing, you know, and what you had to learn about it. But um, she really, uh, she wasn't much of a student in school, but when it came to dancing, she got straight A's across the board because that was her passion. So I really connected with her on, on that level. Um, she ended up going to New York City at the age of 20 and studying with Martha Graham and dancing with Martha Graham's company. Betty, your mother, was very social. She was a social butterfly. <laughs> and she had a lot of suitors, and she you know, would go out on dates. And Martha Graham finally came to her and said, Betty, you, know, you have talent as a dancer, but you have to choose between having a social life and committing fully to dance. Well, were you surprised at what your mother chose? No, because she was a very social human being. Very social human being. She realized she didn't have what, it what she needed to commit to dancing. She moved back to Grand Rapids, and as Susan mentioned, um, she had a career then as a dance instructor and a model. She was absolutely beautiful, and she loved fashion. Um, here she is on the left. She was a fashion coordinator at Herpelsheimer's department store in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And um, she was really a, had this nice career. She was a career woman. She also then met a man, fell in love, and they got married. His name was Bill Warren. That's not Jerry Ford. Um, this would turn out to be what your mother called a five-year misunderstanding. <laughs> it 
turned out that she married someone very similar to her father. And at the end of five years, she made the courageous decision to get divorced. Now, in the 1940s, this really took a lot of courage for a woman to do this. She got $1 in the divorce, and she had to go back to work. She swore she would never get married again. And then Jerry Ford came into her life and swept her off her feet. Lucky for you. Um, so this is Betty with Jerry Ford. And they had a whirlwind romance and ended up getting married October 15, 1948. So um, I think a lot of people didn't realize that Betty had been married before Gerald Ford. So um, Jerry was running for Congress when he was courting Betty. He didn't actually tell her that until after he had proposed. And but that makes no sense, because there had to have been billboards all over town, Jerry Ford. Jerry Con Ford for Congress. So, but she, she says in her books that she, it was a surprise to her. <laughs> but then she got behind him full force, and of course he won. And back in those days, the congressman lived in Washington, D.C. Yes, that's where I grew up. I, I mean, I feel like I'm home in this town, so... So she moved to Washington, they moved to Washington, and so your mother and dad were a little bit older, you know, getting married back in those days. She was 30 and he was 35, so they wanted to start a family right away, and first came along Mike, and then Jack, and um, Betty loved being a mother. She was a very devoted mother, and she, but she also took being a congressman's wife very seriously, and she studied, she would go to the Capitol, and uh, pay attention to what was going on. She really was in, interested in your dad's work. She wanted to be able to talk to him, who, to talk to him in the evenings about what he was doing. Well, she did. And the other thing that she did back then is she would go up and when you had constituents come from Michigan, Grand Rapids, or Western Michigan, she would go give them tours of the Capitol and do that sort of thing so that she felt connected to his constituency as much as he did. I think it also gave her a little bit of a break away from two boys. Um, so, but yeah, she was very involved. She read as voraciously as he did. And, and, and she also was very involved in Republican women's clubs and the Senate wives and all of that. You know, they used to do a lot of work with the Red Cross and that sort of thing. So she was a very involved volunteer. So um, as the family grew... They moved into this house in Alexandria, and that's where you grew up. 514 Crownview Drive. <laughs> and 514 Crownview Drive. And um, here's just an interesting little side note about that address, which I found funny. Um, I had written um, several books with a Secret Service agent, so I was aware of all these different code names that the Secret Service used. And the code name for the White House is Crown. And isn't it ironic that Betty and Gerald Ford moved to Crown View Drive? all those years ago, maybe it was... Well, destined. but as Mother said in her original book, is she went to a tarot card reader years and years and years ago, and they said, you will meet kings and queens. Well, she assumed that she would get to dance in front of kings and queens and not end up where she ended up, so... Yeah, really, really interesting how um, all those things may have been foreseen, foreshadowed. So after Mike and Jack, along came Steve and then Susan, and um, it was quite a bustling household. It was a very busy household. Uh, it was known in Alexandria that if my mother wasn't in the emergency room over the weekend, or at least during the week, that something was wrong at the Ford house. Because <laughs> all my brothers played sports, and, and so when you have three boys, it's 
it's crazy. And our house was pretty crazy. And there were animals and all sorts Alligators of and bunnies <laughs> and dogs. So, um, so imagine, so Betty's now the, the mother of four children and congressman's wife. Your father is moving up in Congress with more and more responsibility, and he traveled a lot, so he was gone a lot. He did travel a lot, and we had a housekeeper by the name of Clara who uh, helped my mother out. Uh, us kids would fake being sick so we could spend the day with Claire if mother was going to be gone for the day. But um, it, it, I mean, it was very busy. They traveled a lot with him being minority leader and climbing the ladders at Congress. Um, they traveled a lot, and she tried to travel with him as much as she could. So, uh, but it was a busy household. Now, when you were about eight years old, it may have been a little bit later. That's than more like six. This picture. Um, your mother, um, she, she woke up in excruciating pain and went to the hospital, and they diagnosed it as a pinched nerve. And do you remember that whole incident? I, I do remember that um, because she spent a lot of time in the hospital um, in traction, and she had was trying to open a window over the kitchen sink, and um, she pinched her nerve doing this in her neck and wore a collar and um, at that time um, the doctor gave her of course prescriptions and um, she said but but what happens if um, I, I get pain and he said well you never let the pain happen you stay ahead of the pain so that was really the beginning of her addiction he said you take those pills every four hours and it wasn't just for 10 days, it was... No, I mean, you know, and of course when she was in the hospital, it was much more, but she went home with many, many medications. Um, and it was debilitating pain that would carry on. Um, she never got over it. It was no, something that no, they No, it never went away. They, they looked correct. at surgery, and surgery was never an option. Um, so th I love this photo. This, You know, your family, you had such a close family, um, and your parents really... Um, tried to instill in you a lot of activities. Skiing was one of your dad's favorite activities. It was, and of course we all learned to ski at, at Boyne Mountain, Michigan, and then later everybody says, oh, well, you skied in Vail. Yes, we did. We skied in Vail for many, many years. Um, but Boyne Mountain had one bad winter, and we went bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> and could you keep up with your brothers? I could in the end, yeah. <laughs> So, um, in, so as we all know, that Richard Nixon becomes president with Spiro Agnew, so he's elected in 68, and then again in 1972, they win in a landslide. Um, and then there's um, an investigation into Vice President Agnew. There's a little bit of history in the book to remind, refresh your memory of how this all happened and how quickly it happened. Um, the vice president resigned, so then President uh, Nixon has to nominate a new vice president. And uh, this was in 1973. And explain what that was like, how old you were, and what was going on at that I, time. I was a junior in high school here in DC. And um, I was in boarding school at the time over in Bethesda, Maryland. And um, I would come home on the weekends. And so I came home that weekend. And I had heard chatter all week at school about you know who the potential vice presidential candidates were, and I knew my dad's name was in there, but, you know, I'd talk to my parents at night, and, and they kind of were like, no, don't worry about it, you know, nothing's going to happen, there were other people out there, and 
So I came home on Friday for my typical weekend at home, and um, my mother was exhausted. The front yard was covered with news media, and um, Sam Donaldson being one of them. And so Sam would call the house every 30 minutes and say... The number was listed in the phone Yeah, book, our right? phone. I, mean, <laughs> I could tell you what our phone number was. But we in those days, you had a your phone number was in the phone book. And um, so uh, Sam Donaldson would call, and, and he'd say, so do we have any update? And I said, Mom, go take a nap. I can handle this. Now, I'm a junior in high school. You know, I'm invincible like most juniors in high school. And my brother Steve was still living at home. He was a senior in high school at the time. And uh, so Mother got up, and we didn't know anything. And, you know, I finally said to her, I said, you know, my mother was not known for punctuality. If any of you out there knew her, she was not a very punctual person. And I said, well, just in case, Mom, let's go pick out a dress in your closet and something to put on. And she said, okay, and then we made a $5 bet. I said, Dad's going to be the vice presidential candidate, and she said, no. She and just couldn't believe it. She, she couldn't, she didn't, I don't think she wanted right. to believe it would be a better well, way to. Well, wait, there's one more piece of this story that I forgot to mention. <clears throat> your father had promised your mother that he was going to retire yeah. from politics, and after the next election, they were going to leave Washington, and she was going to get her husband back, and she was counting down the days to his retirement. She truly was. So Dad comes home that night a little bit early for dinner, which was unusual, and um, we all look at him, and I'm like, you know, what's going to happen? And he said, well, whoever it is is going to get a phone call tonight about 7 o'clock. So we said, okay, so... Mother and Dad and Steve and I sat down to dinner that night, and uh, the phone rings. Well, it's the phone that's upstairs next to Dad's side of the bed, which was a, truly a red, hot phone. There was no dial on it. You just literally picked it up, and it was a direct line to the White House. And um, so I said, I'll get it, and I go flying up the <laughs> stairs and answer the phone because you didn't get to do that very often. <laughs> and they said, is um, Congressman Ford there? This is the White House calling. And I said, just a minute, please. And I run da back downstairs. And I said, Dad, the White House is on the phone. And so he goes upstairs and he says, President Nixon, there's only one extension on this phone. Could you please call back on the other line so, Jer so Betty could hear what you're getting ready to tell us? So he told the president to call back, <laughs> and he did. So uh, that's when we knew, and uh, so it was a very exciting time, and Mother and I had already picked out the dress. So, <laughs> so um, then when he was uh, confirmed, um, I love this picture because this – there, every picture of Jerry and Betty Ford, you can just see their romance and how much they absolutely loved and adored each other. Here he is kissing her on the lips um, in the in the Capitol, you know, in front of everybody. House floor. And um, on the House floor. And um, Speaker Albert is like, oh, wow, I haven't seen that before. But your mother was a little concerned about being vice president, and uh, your father said to her, don't worry, Betty, vice presidents don't do anything anyway. 
And uh, so their retirement plans were still their retirement plans were still okay until then August of 1974 when Watergate all came to a head and Nixon resigned and all of a sudden your father was president of the United States. What was that like that day? Well, I, I, I guess the the hardest part of it is that it was such a sad day for our country. I mean, it's it's not necessarily a personal thing. It's just a sad day for our country and that our country had to go through that. My parents and the Nixons had truly been friends. And so my dad felt very deceived by President Nixon. He had obviously lied to him. Um, and so that was very disheartening for my dad. And my mother and Pat Nixon had been friends as congressional wives and, and working all these years at Senate wives clubs and doing all of this. So it was very hard for the country, but at the same time it was hard on my parents to have to go through this and see their friends go through this. Um, my mother had always been the glue that stuck us together as a family, as you will see in other pictures. Um, it was because us as a family were sitting and waiting in the Oval Office for my parents to come. And <clears throat> Betty would say that this was the saddest day of her life uh, when her husband took the oath of office for the reasons that Susan just uh, mentioned. And um, so then you all did go into the Oval Office and explain who everybody is here. Uh, my brother Jack is on the, the, on the left and then Steve and then my mother, my dad, me in one of my mother's dresses because of course I didn't have an appropriate thing to wear, uh, my sister-in-law Gail and my brother Mike. Mike and Gail had just gotten married uh, and he was in divinity school and Jack was in college and um, it was a big summer for the Fords, uh, a wedding and becoming president. Yeah. Yeah, kind of kind of a, a big thing going on yep. there. <laughs> so um, interestingly enough, I don't know if any if you all remember this, but um, because it was so sudden, um, the, the transfer, the Nixons could, couldn't move out. You know, normally when there's an inauguration and everything's all set and the new president moves into the White House, well, this came so suddenly that the Nixons hadn't moved out of the White House, and so you were still living in your house in Alexandria. Yes, we were. For the first 10 days. Yes, we were. Um, we lived there for 10 days. We could use the White House. I would go over and use um, the bowling alley and, and the movie theater and things like <laughs> that, but you couldn't go up. Mother and I had already been over and picked out my bedroom, which she allowed me to live on the third floor instead of the second floor where they lived. Um, and one of the reasons is there was two bedrooms on the second floor across from the diplomatic reception room, um, and it was had been Trisha's suite, um, and it was all in Pepto Bismol pink. <laughs> and I'm not a Pepto Bismol pink girl. And being a senior in high school now, I'm now a big senior. Um, she said Susan can live on the third floor, which was. Fabulous. <laughs> and so the, the first night, the first day, President Ford goes to work, and then you all went back home. And that night, so he comes back to their home in Alexandria. and they're The commuting president. The commuting president and with the Secret Service. And they're having a little party. Um, and your mother has invited some neighbors over to celebrate her husband becoming president. And she's, uh, as uh, your father walks in the door, this is the story Steve told me, um, 
Betty is taking out a lasagna out of the oven as he walks in, and she looks up and she said, Jerry, there's something wrong with this picture. You're president of the United States, and I'm still cooking. <laughs> she had a great sense of humor. She had a fabulous sense of humor for you that knew her. She was a prankster and a lot of fun to be around. So um, six weeks into this new adventure, there's a crisis in your family. Uh, there is. Um, mother went in for a routine um, mammogram, physical. Every first lady and president gets to have a physical at, at the Naval Bethesda Hospital. And she went with her assistant, who was due to go in, and, and they found a lump in her breast, about the size of a pea. Um, and so we were, t I was told by Dr. Lukash, who was the physician at the White House, and my mother's comment was, I don't have time for this. I've got a really busy schedule, which she did. They had a state dinner coming up, or that may have already happened at that point. But they basically acquired most of the Nixon's schedule as far as social events and, and things like that. My mother was still hiring social secretaries and secretaries and everything else, so we were still very much in a transition. So, But so she went into the hospital, and at that time, you couldn't say breast on television. People didn't talk about cancer. It was just whispered about. Um, but because of all the secrecy that had surrounded the Nixon White House, the Fords had come in and said, we are going to be transparent and open with everything. And Betty felt that she should share what she was going through with the American people. She was going into the hospital. This is the way they did things back then, not knowing um, she was going to be put under general anesthesia. They were going to do the biopsy, and if it was found to be cancerous, they were going to remove her breast while she was still under. So she was going into the hospital not knowing if she had cancer and not knowing if she was going to come out with her breast removed. There was no sort of preparation mentally. Well, there's, there was no informed. I mean, you know, women today have such a huge advantage over what my mother went through, and uh, thank God for that. So Yes, and so she, she came out and told the American public what she was going through, and literally overnight she changed women's health care forever. Because of her courage to speak out about what she was going through, women started calling their doctors to get breast exams because she um, realized that, that she was going to be okay because it was early detected early. And so it started this national conversation about breast cancer. Um, and that was just the first of many things now that she would talk about. Um, the next was the Equal Rights Amendment. Yes, she uh, was a huge believer in the Equal Rights Amendment. And, um, and FYI to all of you, it still hasn't passed. So get hold of your congressmen and senators and, and let's get this done. Um, but it, it was very important to her. She was very pleased that my dad had appointed Carla Hills, who was the first female uh, cabinet member. She would have liked to have had a female Supreme Court justice, but she was, in her pillow talk to my dad, she was always promoting women. And I don't know if that's from having older brothers and, and me having older brothers, but we are very pro-women in our family. <laughs> Well, and she had, go ahead and clap, that's good. <laughs> she had been a career woman herself, and so she saw, you know, you, 
she felt that women should be able to choose what they wanted to do. If you wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, that was great. But if you wanted to have a career, that was great too. And if you wanted to have both, that was great too. Um, but you should have those equal opportunities. Um, so a year after um, they were in the White House, on the year anniversary, your mother agreed to be um, interviewed by Morley Safer on 60 Minutes. Um, we're just going to play you a little clip, not the embarrassing ones, Susan, because your mother did say some embarrassing yes, she did. things about you. But um, <laughs> <laughs> she was always very candid. But I love this because this brings Betty Ford to life. and First Lady. When we went to the White House to chat with Betty Ford, we expected to find, quite honestly, a rather bland and predictable political wife. We found instead an open woman with a mind of her own, prepared to talk about anything, no taboos. Among the things you have spoken out about are abortion, which is kind of a taboo subject for, for the wife of the president. It's one of those well, things that... Well, if you ask a question, you have to be honest exactly how you feel. And I feel very strongly that it was the best thing in the world when the Supreme Court voted to legalize abortion and, in my words, bring it out of the backwoods and put it in the hospitals where it belonged. I thought it was a great, great decision. You've also talked about young people living together before they're married. Well, they are, aren't they? Indeed they are. <laughs> I think everyone would be fascinated to know what is the issue that... You, where you sat Jerry Ford down and said, listen, I want you to listen. Well, a lot of it had to do with uh, perhaps putting um, a woman in the cabinet. Um, you won that one. Yes, I won that one, and I'm working on another. If I can get a woman on the Supreme Court bench, then I think that I'll really be uh, have accomplished a great deal. So she was outspoken. If you asked her a question, she's like she said, if you ask me a question, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, there was a bit of controversy after that interview aired because she talked about abortion, because she talked about people living together. I mean, this was 1974. And that her children smoked marijuana. Yes, her children smoked marijuana. <clears throat> she wouldn't be surprised if her daughter would be having an affair. Uh, I mean, it was... <laughs> but... So their mail started coming into the White House, um, and it was, you know, I think it was Dick Rumsfeld, or Don Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney were pulling their hair out. Oh, my God, what's happened here? But then the, the mail started turning around, and it was overwhelmingly positive. People loved her candor. They did love her candor, and one of the things that Don and, and Dick were having a fit about is when she was calling about the Equal Rights Amendment, she was calling from the, the White House line. And, of course, we didn't have caller ID back then, but um, so she was calling congressmen and senators and that sort of thing, trying to get them to, to vote pro-equal rights and that sort of thing. And um, so Don Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, who were chief of staff and, and under my dad's administration, um, said, to, went to my dad and they said, you know, can you get her to calm down and, and do this and whatever and can she not call from a White House line because it makes it look like, you know, the presidency and everything else. And, and my dad looked at Don and Dick and said, if you have a problem with that, 
you go talk to her. <laughs> so mother's solution to the whole problem was she paid for out of her pocket to have a private line put in and so she would make her calls from that line directly so that it wasn't coming from the White House. Because she felt like just because I'm the wife of the president doesn't mean I'm not also an ordinary citizen and I can speak out about what I want to. Um, she brought dancing back to the White House. All of a sudden, parties were fun again after the Nixon administration. Um, and uh, it was one of the most coveted things to get a, an invitation to a state dinner. This is your mom with Marty Allen. Um, your mom and dad were usually the last people to leave the dance floor. Um, and then your mom really, she blossomed in this role as first lady. It was kind of, um, she had been through a period where she had gone through some depression. Um, and she, in this role as first lady, she realized she had a platform and she was somebody. Well, I, I don't think she realized that she was as well liked until the male you know, she would see the mail and that sort of thing. And so when when they decided to run, um, because it was truly a team effort, she um, the crowds for her were almost bigger than they were for my dad. And she enjoyed that, I have to say. And there were lots of buttons that said, I'm for Betty's husband and <laughs> things like that. Yeah. But she, um, she was very involved in the campaign. So they really you know, wanted to have four more years. Um, and unfortunately, um, Jimmy Carter won. Unfortunately for the Fords, I should say. I'm not being political here. but um, And um, your father had lost his voice um, during the campaign. And so to make the concession speech, he asked Betty to do it. And once again, she showed up there with such courage um, you can see the devastation on everybody's face. And um, your mother really had the attitude of, you know, things are meant to be. They'll work out. Don't look back. Right? You, you can't go back and redo it. Let's just move forward. Right. And, I mean, back then, um, you know, it was a, it was a very close election. Uh, not as close as the Florida with the... Uh, and, and Bushes, but um, back then it was a very close election, and we truly believe we had a chance and we were going to win. Um, God only knows where we'd all be now if things had been different. <laughs> but Mother really was the glue that kept us together, and you'll see in another picture that she's always saying, now put a smile on your face and put, raise your head up high and, and walk out there and we can all do this. So she was that kind of a person, a great cheerleader. Um, so they're leaving the White House. I'm going to go back to this photo because it's a great story. Um, this is on the, the day before the inauguration for Jimmy Carter, and you weren't there. You were. I had college. already left for college. So um, David Kennerly was the chief White House photographer, and he and Betty had become really good friends. Um, they were walking around saying goodbye to all the staff, and um, <clears throat> they walked past the cabinet room, and... Betty said to David, you know, David, I've always wanted to dance on the cabinet room table. And he looked at her and he said, well, Mrs. Ford, this is your last chance. And she took off her shoes and she jumped up on the table, struck a pose, and David snapped a few photos. I really wanted this to be the cover of the book. 
and the publisher, I don't know, they said the chandelier was too busy or something, and they couldn't, couldn't use it. So um, I, I just love this. This showed her attitude, and David Kennerly felt that this picture really epitomized Betty Ford, um, who she was, and just her her sense of humor and everything. So I went through, and it turned out he had taken a bunch of other photos of her on the table that nobody had ever seen before. So this is the one we ended up using on the book. Um, and it just, I love her impish smile. So all of a sudden, now your parents decide to move out to Rancho Mirage, California. They did. Um, this is, I mean, when, when your stuff has been in storage for, well, they were, had another year to build the house for four years and then all of a sudden it is delivered into your garage and you get to go through boxes and boxes of your life and so mother and Caroline Coventry who was her assistant at the time um, we would spend hours in the garage um, unpacking our life shall we say and so the Fords moved out to California where your parents had vacation but your mom didn't have any really close friends out there no, she didn't. The they they had spent a lot of time out there playing golf on and doing trips like that, um, and so they had some friends out there. But you know, it was it was devastating to her to leave all of her years of Washington, and I don't think she was really prepared for that. She wanted out of Washington. She had arthritis. Um, Dad would have liked to have gone to Monterey or Carmel because of the golf up there. And but the dampness of that area would, didn't agree with her, and so they chose the desert because of the dry air. And so imagine you've been first lady, you have helicopters at your beck and call, <clears throat> a thousand invitations a month, and suddenly <clears throat> you're not first lady, and you've moved to a new place. Um, it was very lonely for her. It was very lonely for her. Um, they rented a house for the first year and a half while they built this home. And um, that's when I really saw her. I was living in the desert also. I was the only child close by. Um, and I really saw her addiction progress very quickly. And so um, you hadn't really seen um, that she had an addiction problem at this, up until that point. Well, I, my parents grew up in the era of cocktails every night. Um, and, you know... The prescriptions she was taking were written by a doctor. She went to a doctor, though, probably on a weekly basis, um, always something new, something different, and from B12 shots to a new prescription to something else, she never got better. And um, she would call me and ask me to come over and have lunch with her because my dad was traveling a lot. He was playing golf and sat on many, many boards. Um, and lunch was a disaster. Dinner was a disaster. It was a cocktail before dinner, and she would fall asleep at the dinner table before dinner was ever served. Um, but little did I know until later after the intervention that she had prescriptions at three different pharmacies. <laughs> and she had many doctors writing many, many prescriptions. And... Um, she was, she did what, you know, she did what most addicts do is if two don't work, try three and then have a cocktail on top of it. And it wasn't one cocktail and there was a cocktail after dinner. So it was, it was a disaster. And so um, Susan really was the one in the family who made the courageous decision 
um, that they had to do something, and they had to do an intervention because you were going to lose your mother. You were really she would, fearful. She would have died. And so they had just moved into this home in Rancho Mirage, and um, there's this beautiful portrait of Betty from her days in the White House in the living room there. And this is where you all sat and had that painful intervention, which is detailed in the book. Um, Susan and her brothers all talked to me about it, as well as Betty's assistant. Um, so we got a lot of different perspectives of people who were there and um, how extraordinarily difficult it was. Um, and I really applaud you for having the courage to do that. Um, and so, so that's detailed in the book, and, and I hope you all read it. Um, but your mother was open to going into recover, into treatment at that point, which was the key. Yeah, we, we were very lucky. I had intervened on her a week to 10 days before the actual big intervention with her assistant. Her assistant uh, was my roommate, which was, don't ever recommend that again. <laughs> Um, because she would come home and tell me how bad my mother was. Um, but anyway, Caroline and I tried to intervene on mother one-on-one, -on -one, um, along with Dr. Cruz, who was one of her physicians, um, who was not writing prescriptions because he was in recovery. And um, she threw us out of the house, told us we were monsters, and told us to leave and never come back, which for a... 19, 20-year-old girl was pretty devastating. So when we did put the intervention together and she did choose to go to Long Beach Naval Hospital, she did not go to the Betty Ford Center, as most people assume. Um, there were no Betty Ford Center. There was no Betty Ford Center there, but a lot of people assume she went to the Betty Ford Center. Um, she went to Long Beach Naval Hospital, which doesn't exist anymore from my understanding. Um, and so she was treated with a bunch of Army and Navy and learned, it increased her cursing uh, ability <laughs> quite well. Uh, I went to, quote, family there, which was, um, boy, has family come a long way since I went to family there. Um, but we, all of us as family members did our own recovery on the side. And, you know, we all thought that once she went to treatment, that it was a breeze after that. And little did we know that we all needed help, and so we did. And once again, Betty Ford showed her courage by speaking out publicly about what she had been through, and again, the mail poured in. She heard from people who were so grateful to her for speaking out, mostly women um, who didn't know what to do, um, didn't know how to get help, and were saying to her, how did you do it? I, I want to get sober, and I need to know how you did it. And it was that, I think, combined then with the next year, um, your next-door neighbor, Leonard Firestone, they did an intervention with him. He got sober, and he said to Betty, you know what, the two of us can do something together. And they decided that that's when the Betty Ford Center was was going to start. And your mother, she, at first, it wasn't going to be named the Betty Ford Center, and she really didn't want her name on it. No, she really didn't. Um, she was only had three or four years of sobriety at that point. And um, she came to us kids, and she said, you all are the ones that are going to have to live with this forever. How do you feel about that? 
And um, we were huge proponents. Go for it. It doesn't matter. Uh, we're proud of you. We're, we're proud of what you've done. And we would be proud to have it named after her. And as we all know, it's become the gold standard. Um, and and she, she not only put her name on it, though, um, as many of you know, she was there every day. She, she picked out the carpeting and the, the draperies and everything, and she was there every day to, um, to be there, to be a force, to be with the people who needed the help. And she continued for many years um, speaking once a month for every um, group of people that came in there to tell her own story. Yes, she spoke to the patients and loved the patients. And uh, that was her little gem, to say the least. So um, Betty Ford died in 2011. We lost President Ford five years earlier. Um, your parents had such a lovely relationship. I'm sorry, this always makes brings tears to your eyes. Um, I know you miss them so much. Um, the book is also really a love story because they had an incredible love story. And um, Susan, I'm so glad that you accepted my phone call or just agreed to uh, participate in this book and took my letter that day. Um, it's a wonderful story, and I've gotten so much wonderful feedback from people who didn't know who Betty Ford was. It's opened it up to a whole new generation of people to see the force that she was. And I'm proud of the book and so proud that um, you participated with me. We've so had a good time. We've had a good time. So thank you all. And we'd love to take some questions as well. Um, I guess my mic's, I'll, well, there we go. Oh, my goodness, thank you. That was, that was just wonderful. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. I bet folks will have questions, and we will pass microphones around if you'll raise your hand. Um, here's a question. We'll go right over here. What I'm curious to know is how did your mom get sober? Can you tell us a little bit about did they do a detox? Tell us, like, did she, what kind of intervention exactly did she have that worked for her? Our intervention, which it goes into great detail um, in the book, um, as we did it in the living room, uh, Dr. Persh was um, our interventionist. Uh, Dr. Cruz, who had been one of her physicians, who was in recovery himself, was there. We had brought in a Navy nurse because we did her detox at home. And we didn't really know until we cleaned out the medicine cabinet what detox was going to look like. Um, so she was at home for about a week uh, until she went to Long Beach Naval Hospital. And while she was detoxing, um, several members of the AA community there were showing us videos and educating us as family members to the best of our ability. Our, all of us children lived, Mike and Gail were in Pittsburgh then, Jack was in Utah, or I don't remember. But anyway, they were just trying to get us started in what to expect and what we needed to do as far as AA and Al-Anon and all of that and educate us as fast as they possibly could. Questions? Be brave. 
We don't bite. There's one over here, Marvin. You, um, where are we? Right over here. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can get over there. It's not really a question. It's a quick story because your mother had a profound impact on my life in early sobriety. Is that okay? Love to hear it. Um, and if I violate any AA rules, the AA police can yell at me later. I got sober. I went to Hazelden in 1996, and I got out of Hazelden, and I went to, I followed the rules, right? You have to go to an AA meeting. So I went to this AA meeting in uh, this church basement, and I walked down this dark hallway, and I looked down the hallway, and there's a bunch of old people in the room. And so I quickly turned around and went the other way, and I hear, hey, you! And, and so I go back to the meeting, and I go down into this basement, and there's a bunch of old people in the room, and that's what it was. And so... I'm 28 years old. I'm newly sober. I got like five days of sobriety. A couple months later, I'm still in that meeting. They took me on as a mascot. And I truly was. And it was profound uh, several months of early sobriety in that meeting. And well, I get to the meeting one day, and there's a cake, and they have this little party. And I'm new. I never saw a party before. And they're giving cake away. And so, oh, Betty's going back to California. And I said, oh, cool. And, and so she comes over, and she says some kind words to me. Um, which I remember. And so we all leave, and, and somebody says, well, what'd she say to you? I said, who, the old lady Betty? And, mm -hmm. and she's, then everyone says, that's Betty Ford, you moron. <laughs> and I said, really? <laughs> and I never knew that. And so to me, I always remember that as a true example of humility, a true example of service that I sat next to her for six months in early sobriety. I didn't even know who she was. All she did was share experience, strength, and hope with me. Wow. And, and profound impact on me. So thank you. First off, thank you uh, for sharing. Quite amazing. I have a question for you, Susan. Uh, how aware of your mom's alcoholism and addiction was he aware of? Was it a surprise? How aware was I of what? Oh, your father. Of, of your father. I, I would love to ask him that question now. Um, I would complain to him and say, I mean... There were there were many times <clears throat> that she fell in the middle of the night when he was traveling, and of course she was home alone, and I'm living in a condo 15 minutes away, and I would go over there in the morning, and in one particular instance she had a chipped tooth, and so she was running to the dentist to get her tooth fixed before anybody ever noticed. Um, the... I would say to Dad, we've got to do something. What are we going to do? And he'd say, well, I don't know. And, and that's where I would say I was extremely blessed by spending a day with Dr. Cruz, who was both my mother's physician and my physician. And Dr. Cruz worked with um, an organization in the high desert uh, called Turnoff, which was a place for, for kids um, that were getting sober. And I, my, my degree is, my non-degree, I should say, since I didn't finish college, um, was in photojournalism, and, and he knew that, and he asked me to come with him up to Turnoff to take some photographs for their uh, pamphlet. And I did the typical. Um, I have a friend whose mother has a problem. 
and where do I find help and what do I do and that sort of thing. By the end of the day, after spending the day with Dr. Cruz, um, and he dropped me back off in the Eisenhower parking lot, he looked at me and he said, that person is your mother. And I said, yes, it is. So that began the relationship of Dr. Cruz and I working together to try and solve this problem. And so whatever information I had, I would share it with my dad. But I think he was in total denial. He adored her. And I think he was afraid he would lose her. And we could have lost her. So thank you. Anyone else? Anybody else? Well, we're oh, uh, Bobby. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just want to say thank you for sharing your mom and also for doing that work because I've been around in this field for 25 years. I got sober in Minnesota and I knew none of this. It's so rich and it's so personal and it's we're a fellowship based on shared experience and stories. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you. Thank you. So we're, um, we have the book outside, and Susan and I are going to be signing them. Um, they make great Mother's Day gifts. <laughs> <laughs> and they're more, worth so much more after both our signatures. So. That's right. <laughs> so uh, thank you Susan all for having Lisa, us. thank you very much. If you, are, if you are registered for the CEO Luncheon, please hustle on over there so we can get started on time. The CEO Luncheon is in the Diplomat Room just next door. <laughs>